Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming. Relax. Let me entertain you <laughs> as for fashion so um, uh, tonight fear 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 I love talking about fear why I don't know I uh, uh, I am besides being a uh, working in Buddhist counseling uh, and uh, somebody who's spent a lot of his love life besides being fascinated by clinical psychology and the Dharma. Uh, I have a few favorite neuropsychologists that I read a lot of, and all of them tend to focus on fear. Uh, Joseph Ledoux, who runs the NYU Emotions Clinic right over here, you can actually hear him talk. Uh, He gives talks occasionally in New York, and then there's, of course, Sapolsky, uh, he does some great works on stress and fear. So my goal tonight is to introduce you to a blend of the actual neuropsychology of fear mixed with some of the dharmic views on fear. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a meditative practice that can help us work with fear and then essentially develop the stress tolerance for things that we are um, perhaps triggered by. And the goal will be to give you tools that you can move forward with in your life as a way to essentially um, deactivate some of the maladaptive strategies that we employ ever since childhood to deal with things that we're frightened with uh, generally in adult life tend to turn into self-sabotaging strategies. So just indulge me for a moment and what I'd like you to do is make a fist with your right hand and then cup your left hand on top of your fist and if you don't know what this is, what you've just done is made an excellent model of the brain. That's right, your brain, my brain. This part over here on your, le- on your right wrist that's beneath is called the brain stem, where the meat of the thumb is. That's where, this is your spinal column. This is the brain stem. This is what's known in neuropsychology as level one. And that's what governs all of the basic homeostatic processes that keep you alive. Like when you breathe, how often you breathe, it checks your blood sugar levels. If it finds it, it triggers other parts of the brain to create appetite. If your blood sugar levels drop, it, uh, it organizes the muscle movements that, you know, that allow you to walk. All the repetitive behaviors are governed down here by the basal ganglia and the medulla, blah, blah, blah. Not going to talk too much about that. Just want you to know that's level one in Buddhist work. This is called the first foundation of mindfulness, paying attention to the way you breathe and the way your body is. So it's all focused on the operations of the brainstem. Now, here, your right fist is the midbrain. And especially this area right over here, right in the middle of the midbrain, is a very important region we're going to be talking about a lot tonight, which is called the amygdala, and I'll come back to that. But right now, it's just important to know that your limbic region is the mammalian brain. The brainstem was the reptilian. This is your what some people call the mammalian brain. It developed in mammals uh, millions of years ago. And in addition to the reptile freeze response and run response. This has the fully uh, human fight, flight, freeze, the caregiving instincts and all that are in this. And also the core drive to attach is in your midbrain. And the Buddhist landscape, the second midbrain is known as the second foundation. That's what we are, when we're focusing on feelings, we're actually checking 
the body for the core fight, flight, freeze, uh, embedded reactions of feelings. And then this whole left hand right on top is the neocortex and right over here is the frontal lobe and that's where you have all the higher executive functioning including thought, uh, much higher order emotional responses, um, where you have executive function, working memory, narrative, all that. So all of these work together as a team and the idea that you can separate any level out, they're all largely interconnected. They all have a lot of axons, dendrites connecting them, but uh, it's helpful to have a basic model tonight so that you have a sense of what we're talking about. The bulk of what we're going to be talking about is that level number two, the realm of feelings, the realm of the midbrain, the limbic system, and especially we're going to be talking about the very hub of this, the very hub of most of our feelings, which is the amygdala. The amygdala is a very small almond-shaped region of the brain, especially tiny given how powerful and how much of human behavior is actually controlled by your amygdala. It's the region that is activated during fear, during aggression, and even at times during lust. Boy, that's not really surprising sometimes when you think about it, because the same feeling that we have when we're really angry, when we're really frightened, and when we're really in a sort of heightened sexual state are triggering very, very similar body sensations. And I've actually met in counseling, I've met people who literally couldn't tell the difference between when their body was telling them to flee versus when they were actually excited by meeting someone and they were on a date. So they're very similar functions because are very similar body states because they're actually activated by that very same region of the brain. The amygdala is so important to survival that it's the only region that has a direct shortcut from the basal from the brain stem there's a shortcut that goes directly to it and gives it all of the most important pertinent sensory information that's coming in at any given moment and essentially what it does is it gives you an opportunity before you fully recognize a situation or know exactly what is happening. It gives you the opportunity to start running for your life. So William James and the early psychologists noticed that when people respond to a threat like a bear, they literally start to go into that tightened body state, that, that triggered response, even before they become cognitively aware that there's some threat in the room. They, there's an unconscious direct pickup. We have, for example, uh, implicit fears of snakes. And so if you are walking in a park and a certain stick is on the ground that has any shape similar to a snake, this fast, very fast circuit that goes to your amygdala will trigger you to become stressed out because you haven't yet figured out that this, the piece of wood is not a snake. It's just a branch that's fallen from a tree. So that's why sometimes we can have startle responses and then realize, oh, that was just a sudden sound. That was not a gunshot, etc. It's because the amygdala has gotten a really fast, dirty information and has jumped to a conclusion. And then your cortex up here has said, no, wait, that's not a snake, not a bear, not a gunshot. It's just a safe cue. So the amygdala itself has two dominant parts. And this, from this, we, uh, all this research was done by Joseph Ledoux at NYU. Basically, the amygdala's core is what actually activates fear. So when you are frightened of something or uh, you are in dread or anxious, your amygdala literally triggers the release of cortisol, which is a stress hormone that changes the way your blood flows, contracts muscles, it stops digestion. And then another 
thing it does is it activates all these subcortical processes, i.e. down in the brainstem, that prepare you to run or fight. So it stops you from digestion, it stops you from developing white blood cells, and it puts you into a hypervigilant defensive state where you're tense and you're looking for a sudden danger or threat to appear. And that is the classic core of a stress response. Now there's another part to the amygdala that's not the core that's around it, and that's known as the BLA, and you don't really have to remember that unless you're a neuroscience geek, but um, I'm going to be using the term BLA. It stands for basal lateral amygdala, and really all it does is it's the part of your brain that learns to be frightened. And that's the great insight of Damasio's research showing that there's one little part of the brain whose job is to learn what things in life we should be frightened of. It's really important to understand how the BLA works because once we understand it, we can realize just how set up we are uh, due to our evolutionary heritage to now live in needless levels of anxiety and stress due to this one region of the brain that made perfect sense at, for much of human civilization when we were hunter-gatherer collectives and there was significant threats all the time in daily life. So it was important to have a part of the brain that was very powerful, that was very simple and very adaptive that would be able to essentially um, uh, uh, learn things to be frightened of. I'll give you an example. Could you do me a favor? Could you ask them to turn the music down, by the way? I can. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so uh, you're at an ATM. You've traveled up to a region in Midtown you've never been to before. You're at an ATM. You pull out some money. You walk to... Uh, a grocery store and right when you get to the corner near the grocery store you get mugged at gunpoint it's very frightening it's a trauma and they take your money and they run so the core threat there was the person with the gun and if we didn't have a BLA, if we simply had an amygdala, that's all we would be frightened of, that specific incidence. But to help us survive, the brain developed a learning, a fear learning part that looked for every cue that was present during a trauma or a fear event to help us predict in the future when we would be endangered. So, for example, you won't just in the future be triggered by somebody who looks like the assailant who mugged you, you also be triggered by ATMs. You'll also be triggered by Midtown. You'll also be triggered by the same grocery store. Because the job of the BLA is to learn everything that was present during a trauma or a negative event and turn it into a trigger that will activate the amygdala that will put you in a hypervigilant state of survival because it believes whenever you see these cues again that it will it means you're in danger. So I'll give you a classic example. Um, somebody who grows up with anxious attachment, they have an unreliable bond with one of their, core, their caregivers. Um, they wind up in a relationship where things seem to be going well, and then out of the blue, they find out that their partner, uh, their partner dumps them, or they find out their partner's been cheating on them. It's a trauma that triggers the early wounds of childhood. Now that person starts dating again after they go through that event, and when they go out on dates, they become hypervigilant. They start looking for every little sign that the person is judging them. They can't relax. They are constantly getting tense. They find themselves always in a panic. They uh, uh, are in a state of reactivity where they can't be joking and comfortable. They're constantly self-critical because they, they're, the BLA has said any romantic situation 
could turn into a trauma. So until the BLA learns that something is safe, it will, from then on, say this thing is dangerous. And that's what's important to understand. The regions of the midbrain and the right hemisphere are timeless. Things that happen that are uh, emotionally wounding or traumatic that happen when you're seven will still be terrifying when you're 67, unless at some point in between you unlearn that that cue or those sets of cues are no longer dangerous. If at seven, one of your caregivers, uh, you're, you're, you had a uh, close relationship with a father and then suddenly out of the blue, your parents got divorced and then you become separated from that caregiver. And then from that point on, the being in a relationship, you're constantly in that state of vigilance until we can relax and show the uh, brain that that set of cues is no longer dangerous, no longer being having an attachment figure means abandonment. So if you've been mugged after you take out money from an ATM and you want to be able to go to ATMs after that without going into a panic attack, we have to literally show through a series of processes that ATMs are no longer dangerous. You can't think your way into it because the amygdala doesn't understand language. You literally have to show it that something's safe. And we'll, uh, this is important to understand. Anything we avoid and we practice avoidance coping, the amygdala will learn and will associate with danger. Because while you're avoiding something, you're associating that thing you're avoiding with an emotional state of anxiety. So for example, classic example, you go through a breakup and you don't want to see your ex. And your ex lives in, where do they live, Mirza? Give me a neighborhood. Bensonhurst. Oh my God. Well, we don't have to worry about it. We're never. That's convenient, in fact. That just gives us a reason not to go there. Thank God. I don't have to go there again. Uh, Bedsty. All right, I, I like that style. Uh, uh, let's use something that other people really go to a lot. Williamsburg. Okay. So Williamsburg, you live in Greenpoint, but you've dated somebody who lives in Williamsburg, and then after a year, you go through a, an unpleasant breakup. I like that we're using Williamsburg because it's uh, more inconvenient. To, if you live out here or Bushwick, it's more inconvenient. So you originally, after that, you might fall into a pattern of what's called avoidance coping. What's that? Well, you decide, I really don't want to run into that schmuck. Uh, because it'll, I'll feel sad and it will bring up feelings of abandonment, rejection, disappointment. So I'm going to avoid those seven blocks of Williamsburg. I'm not going to go near them. I'm just going to bypass them. And there's this general belief that once I get over it, I'll go back to those seven blocks and everything will be okay. Mm, wrong. That's not the way the BLA works. In fact, the fact that you've avoided those seven blocks that you associate with your ex will now encode those blocks as not only unpleasant, but dangerous. And now when you think about going into that neighborhood, you'll start to have a stress response. And then even going near that neighborhood, because avoidance coping grows. So at first you were just avoiding between, say, South 2nd and North 4th. But now you don't want to go anywhere past Union to the East River. You don't want to go anywhere. I'm being too specific with this, but you get it. Uh, it spreads. It spreads, right? And that's what avoidance coping does, because anything you associate with an actual trauma or an actual emotionally wounding event, the BLA will learn as dangerous, especially if you avoid it. So avoidance coping never, 
ever works. In fact, as a developmental marker that shows someone is moving ahead in therapy, one of the oldest tools used is to is to note if a client is overcoming their avoidance coping and doing the things that they used to avoid because that is a sure marker that someone is actually beginning to heal when they start moving towards rather than away from emotionally triggering events it doesn't ever get easier to face one's fears the idea that i'll just give it time and then i'll get back on the bike after the bike accident doesn't work it's there's something in the old horrific uh you know maladaptive father who says just get back on the bike after you go on a bike accident but there's actually a lot of truth to it because the longer you wait after trauma the more likely the BLA is to associate that with danger and then getting on a bike will actually trigger the rapid heart rate, the hair standing on the back of the neck, the tight stomach, the contracted chest, the shallow breath, the pinned attention, the, the stopping of digestion and all that will be triggered because you've avoided something, you now have made it into a threat. BLA memories, memories, as I said, are timeless. So the idea that they will fade or go away doesn't work. The only way to undo a fear is actively, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Every time you recall something that's frightening, you have a, both an opportunity to make it less of a threat or more of a threat because all memories can be changed each time they're active. That's another thing that Ledoux's research at the Emotions Lab has shown. So when you're remembering something that's frightening, if while you're remembering it, you become tight and you start hyperventilating and your body contracts and your mind starts adding all these stories about, oh no, maybe this will happen again, then you've re-encoded that cue with threat and you're retraining your BLA to even be more frightened of the event. On the other hand, you can, each time you remember a threat and it comes, pops into your mind as a flashbulb memory, you also have an opportunity. You can disencode it as a threat. So classic therapeutic work for soldiers who come back from war zones is when they've been in a trauma where a buddy has been blown to bits and they've, you know, roadside car bomb has been, uh, has been exploded is to literally put them into a, a EMDR therapy where the therapist will slowly walk them back into the memories, but will do it while they're either squeezing left, right, a stimulus, or they'll be focusing on their breath or doing a relaxation technique. So while they are remembering the trauma, they're telling the amygdala, the BLA, through the fact that their body's relaxed, they're breathing comfortably, that that cue is no longer a threat. And that's the way we have to disencode or unlearn threats. It's not by thinking our way out, it, though there is a role that the frontal lobe plays. Interestingly enough, uh, one thing that we now know is that all human beings are born with a uh, what, the, what some Buddhists call a kind of Buddha nature. We're actually all born with brains that are wired to connect with others that are wired to trust, that are wired to uh, be confident. And we actually learn vigilance and we learn distrust through actual life experiences. And that is uh, uh, the key to understanding why people actually statistically are more secure than insecure, although I never get to meet the secure ones. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, we're all born with a with wiring in the anterior cingulate cortex that makes us want to connect, to trust other people, to rely on others. But through learned experience, the BLA starts distrusting people and starts developing in life all these different cues that tells us that we're unsafe. Certain body language, tones of voice, 
the looks a caregiver would give us before they were critical or abandoning. All of those cues build up until we unlearn them. And that's very, very important, is that we have to unlearn. Interestingly, the amygdala never itself fully decides that something that we've told it is threatening. It doesn't just decide one day, oh, it's now safe to be in a relationship. It's now safe to go to an ATM. It's now safe to, you know, uh, own a dog. It's now safe to get back on a bike after an accident. What happens is somebody has to actively unlearn fear. And it's a process that doesn't just use the amygdala, it uses the entire brain. So I'll talk about the process of unlearning fear. The last thing I'll say before we go into it is that um, when the hypervigilant stress response is activated by a cue, so for instance, you're in a job, you don't know people very well, Uh, And previously before this job in your past, maybe 10 years ago in your past, you were at a job where you were new and suddenly out of the blue, you thought you were doing a really great job and you get called into an office and somebody is really cruel and critical and says, you're not doing a good job. Everybody says you're, you know, you're, you're not you're not living up to the expectations you got to get on the ball so that original response is a kind of a trauma and now you have any situation where you're in a new job where you can't read people very well where there's a lot at stake can turn into a cue that will trigger hypervigilance and when we are triggered The next thing we do when we're in hypervigilant state is we try to repress awareness of it by going into what's called worrying. Worrying is a left hemispheric overlay that tries to repress awareness of the stress response. So by the time we're adults, we've developed all these cognitive ways to repress awareness of underlying emotional states. We when we're angry, instead of feeling angry, we have resentment, stories about why other people suck. When we are sad, instead of feeling sad, we have stories of self-pity. When we're feeling excited, instead of feeling excited, we have stories of grandiosity. We're essentially using uh, in defense, it's a defense me- mechanism known as intellectualization. The Buddha talked a lot about it. It's the things we cling to so that we don't feel the underlying emotional state. The classic way we repress awareness of stress and anxiety is through worrying, catastrophizing, visualizing everything that could go wrong expecting to be fired, to be dumped, to be that people are ganging up on us, that roommates don't like us, that that's the way when you find yourself in a catastrophizing loop where your brain is jumping from one thing after another that can go wrong, it means that there's an underlying state of vulnerability that's been triggered by a cue and that you're not aware of it. And the first thing to do is to become aware of the physiological sensations of the stress. And then what we can do is unlearn fear. That's what I'm going to talk about now. How do you unlearn fear? Well, uh, it's called in psychology fear extinction. Um, And again, We don't forget that things are scary. It's an active process we have to do. We have to train the mind, all of the levels of the brain, especially the highest level and the mid-level, now have to write new circuits that say that going to an ATM or getting on a bike are now safe, that we don't have to have a panic response. The Buddha said... In the Abhaya Sutta, there are four practices that reduce fear. I'm just going to mention them quickly because there's a lot of wisdom to them. The Buddha said people are more prone to fear and being frightened when they are constantly 
addicted to uh, attaining security through acquiring. That's like through constantly trying to find security through attaining money, financial security, uh, objects, uh, a better apartment, a better you know job. That constant sense of trying to acquire security. The second he said is when we're overly attached to our bodies, the way our bodies look, rather than accepting that bodies change. The third is when we fail to act on pro-tribal um, uh, instincts, which are essentially altruism, kindness, compassion. The less we do that, the more we don't have a secure base in life. If we don't have a secure base in life, we are far more likely to be triggered into uh, fear, uh, stress responses. And also having a doubt about what establishes peace of mind. Those were the four things the Buddha said that chronically lead to needless fear in life. And the underlying wisdom is that the idea that we can acquire security or that we can get something that will or attain something that will make us not fear something is it doesn't work. There are practices that unlearn fear, but you don't become less vulnerable or frightened by making more money or by uh, getting a nicer place to live in or by uh, having something that you didn't have in the past. The, 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 essentially, the uh, processes that establish security have nothing to do with attaining anything. So what has been shown to, ex be, to lead to uh, fear extinction is always a form of exposure. Exposure means we have to, in a safe, non-overwhelming uh, way, re-expose ourselves to the very thing that we've been dreading. And while we do that, we have to practice what's known as distress tolerance. Uh, this was very key in the Buddha's Savasava Sutta, and it's the very hub that's used in cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's essentially, there's no way around it. We have to, when there's something that we're avoiding, we have to re-expose ourselves to it, but do it in a way that when the stress response happens, it will not become overwhelming and will re-encode that cue as a real threat. What our goal is, is to bring up the cue, but then to change the physiological and emotional response so that we're now informing the BLA using your frontal lobe, you're informing the BLA that that thing you've decided was frightening is no longer frightening or no longer stress-inducing. Classic example, you're in a car accident, you're listening to a song on the radio. Mirza, what are we listening to? Uh, minor Threat, of course. Minor Threat. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Exactly. We're listening to an early 80s, you know, very sober Ian McKay band, Straight Edge, while we're driving an automobile. Yeah. Of course we were going to get an accent. What? <laughs> you actually have WFMU in a car. How? You have a Wi-Fi in your car? 91.1. Oh, really? You can get it in a car? I have no idea. I like this. <laughs> I'm going to over, because nobody here but you and I and Allison know a minor threat. Well, oh, Steve does. Everybody, everybody. All right. Well, yeah, okay, all right, minor threat. I'm going to say Fugazi. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Fugazi. It's more like you're listening <laughs> to Fugazi because you're still into Ian McKay, but you like uh, the End the Hits album, right? So you listen to End Hits, and Fugazi's on, and you get in a car accident, and then when somebody plays one of those songs, guess what? The BLA has associated Fugazi with trauma. And you don't want that because you really like to listen to Fugazi and you don't want to have to spend the rest of your life practicing avoidance coping with Fugazi. 
That would be sad. I don't know how we got here, but we did. So how would we disencode Fugazi as no longer something that triggers stress, makes us anxious, that puts us in a hypervigilant state? Well, the first thing we would do would be to gradually, incrementally introduce ourselves to the, th the threat cue in practice. So rather than if you have a fear of heights, you just don't go to the top of a building and run to the edge. That will simply re-encode heights as something that's associated with trauma, fear, endangerment. What you do is you visualize going to the top of a building and you visualize while you're doing it, you're in a movie theater and you're just watching it on the theater, but you're in a theater and at any point you can pull your awareness away from the screen and you can see that you're not actually there. So you can actually hold the triggering image, but meanwhile, simply by paying attention to your body, your breath, relaxing the core muscles of the vagal vagus nerve, your throat, your chest, your face. So you keep breathing and relaxing the muscles in the front of your body while you're holding the image of the trigger. You can view like, like the, the image in your mind is like the movie screen. It's a horror movie. It's really frightening. So what do you do when you're in a horror movie? You sometimes look away from the screen and remind yourself, oh, I'm just in a movie theater. It's not really happening. This is what you're doing in distress tolerance. You're holding the image of something that is triggering, like a, you're going into a neighborhood where an X might be. You visualize seeing them on a the street, right? But now I'm saying, right, like, you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm just making this up. But anyway, I don't need to hold the screen up anymore. <laughs> but you have the idea. You're visualizing running into somebody that you've been avoiding. But at the same time, you're pendulating from that image down into your body, looking for any tension that's building, and you're breathing in and relaxing it. First, you're starting with the breath in the order of the Buddha's four foundations. You're, of mindfulness, you're going to first relax your breath while you're holding the stress trigger or cue in your mind. Then you're going to focus on feelings. You're going to relax the muscles in your face, your throat, your chest, your belly. Then you're going to relax your attention so that your attention isn't jumping about. You're going to just settle, whisper yes while you hold the image so you're not going to try to avoid the image. When you're actually in a situation that uh, actually activates, it's not, no longer something that you're visualizing, you're actually there, there's other tools you can use. One is to observe safety cues. When people are in triggering situations, they tend to, because the right hemisphere is guiding attention, they tend to fixate on the cues that are making themselves feel endangered. So if somebody's in a job interview and they associate job interviews with rejection and shaming and uh, being you know, disappointed, then they go into that setting and the moment they get triggered, they start locking eyes with the person that's interviewing them because they're trying to find out the exact moment when they're going to be rejected. And so they're not anymore looking for safety cues which will deactivate. So they're not giving themselves permission to look around the room, to drink in the signs that this situation is different than a childhood situation where we were rejected by a teacher or parent. So drinking in safety cues is very, very important. Uh, if panic sensations are very strong, a classic technique that is used in deactivating panic attacks, as well as, of course, the long exhalations, the longer exhalations, speaks to the core amygdala and says that we're safe. It takes about 15 minutes, though, because cortisol tends to be released for at least 10 to 15 minutes. So you won't feel the relief immediately, but long exhalations do switch it off. But another thing to do is to create a really tight sensation in your lower body 
that pulls your awareness away from the triggering thoughts and the fix, hyperfixation on some external uh, danger cue and brings you into a safe sensation in your body. So a classic technique is to squint your toes as much as you can while you're in a situation with an interaction with somebody that's triggering or frightening or while somebody's not looking you simply grab and tighten your fists around your kneecaps creating as much tension as you possibly can that grounding sensation will pull your awareness away from the triggers that are re-triggering essentially the stress response over and over and over again so now what we're going to do is we're actually going to, in a meditation process, do distress tolerance. And we're going to lead or start the process of extinguishing something in your life that produces anxiety. So thank you for listening. And now find a really comfortable position. We'll just start by trying to cultivate a state of ease. We'll do a couple of techniques. So first, just focus on relaxing breaths. So complete in-breaths that really Full up first the belly or the chest, just feel them expand. And then when you release, very long, <coughs> slow, extended exhalations. And as you, you're not pushing out the air, you're releasing the air. And as the air releases and you feel the stomach or the chest return to its relaxed position, just imagine the breath is taking with it any stress, any tension. So breathing in, you feel the belly or the chest, receiving the air. And then when you release the out breath, it's with it any tightness or tension in the belly or the chest. Seeing if we can make the out-breaths even twice as long as the in-breaths. So if you're breathing in and you imagine it being on a count of three, then the out-breath might be on a count of six beats in your mind. Or if you could count to four while you're breathing in, then when you breathe out, you could release the breath. It's almost to a count of seven or eight. It's a really long, very, very gentle out-breaths. The longer the out-breath, it's sending a direct message to the midbrain and it's basically saying, I'm safe right now. This is always the first step in developing distress tolerance, always having a breath, a foundation that establishes 
that talks to these really ancient parts of the brain that don't understand ideas or language, but do understand that a really long, comfortable out-breath means that nothing bad is going to happen to us. Just receiving all the sounds, the ambient sounds, trying to bring awareness as close to every sensation that's actually occurring. What we're (coughs) aiming for is simply to get really close to lived experience as it is without adding that overlay of thought that essentially pulls us away from our life and that has a tendency of actually activating so much needless stress so just being with the sensations whatever they are trying not to push any sensation away whether internally as a feeling or a sense of discomfort or comfort in the body and also external sensation sounds feelings of heat coolness lights flickering behind closed eyelids especially the intrusive sounds just allow them welcome them Imagine in your mind you're just saying yes to everything that's actually happening in this moment. And when we find ourselves being lured away from our actual lived experience, what's that we're feeling internally, what's the sensations that are arriving from the outside world, and we find ourselves in that third murky realm of thinking, fantasy, memory, where we're in a virtual reality, there's nothing to feel frustrated about. It's actually a wonderful opportunity to get back on the path back home to your actual lived experience. And you do that by just relaxing Your home is surrounding you. It's all the sensations that are actually occurring. So you don't have to do anything when you find you're lost in thought. Just simply relax, breathe out, and find 
connect back again with uh, real tangible sensations. We're trying to cultivate that awareness of where we've arrived at someplace really special. Our favorite place, maybe in the country or by the ocean. Any place that when we're there, we don't really want to be anywhere else. We want to just leave behind all the stories and unfinished business of life and we just want to really connect with our life as it is to see if you can cultivate that state of mind So now what I'd like you to do is to while your eyes are closed I'd like you to imagine that you're suddenly in any room, any place that you want to be and that there's this warm, strong, confident feeling that lies in the very core of your being and that feeling is now growing out of your core and it's creating what we'll just refer to as a protective bubble and while you're in this bubble it's this surrounding force field as it were and nothing can happen to you while you're in this protective bubble You're completely safe and you can float anywhere in the room you are, up or down, back or forward. As the Buddha taught, you can do anything in your meditation practice. You're now in a secure 
bubble that nothing can happen to you. You're completely safe. Maybe it's an arm's length from your body. But while you're in this, nothing can remove you from a sense of being utterly protected, safe, secure. And just feel that sense of knowing you can go anywhere then you're safe. There's a maybe a sensation of an ease in your stomach, or maybe your chest expands just ever so slightly, making it easier to breathe. Or maybe there's a slight relaxation in the brow. So while we're in this sense of protection, I'd like you to bring to mind something that is scary, something that is triggering, something that you've been avoiding, a person, a situation, a doctor's office, dentist's office, a family reunion, seeing an ex. Any situation that is at all uncomfortable, I'd like you to bring it up in the screen of your mind. And you could either imagine yourself as actually being there in your bubble your protective bubble, or you can imagine is now a movie that's being projected of a scary, frightening situation, but it's just on the screen. And while that image is there, a very clear visual image of something you've been dreading, breathe, keep the out-breath really long, Breathing into the muscles in the face and relaxing. Breathing into the throat, relaxing. Pendulating to the image that's triggering and then back to the body, relaxing. Pendulating back to the image that's triggering and then Back to the stomach, breathing into it, softening any tension. Back to the image, and back to the belly, softening the belly with the out breath. holding the image in your mind and just whispering a very simple yes that tells your mind that you're not scared of this person, this situation anymore. Just speaking in the earliest language that the right hemisphere of the brain can understand, just a very simple yes. I'm not frightened of you. I can be with you. And any time an image becomes frightening, we can look away from the screen, back into the body, and relax, and soften whatever area of the body is tight. So, in a moment, I'm going to 
ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, very, very slowly open your eyes to about half-mast where you can see the ground in front of you. And when you do, see if you can integrate awareness of light and color with the embodied awareness that you've just developed. So a mindful state of awareness is when you're aware of how you feel internally, how your belly, your throat, your chest, how your breath feels, when you're aware of what's going on around you, not just the uh, most obvious, but you're aware of the fully surrounding environment filled with safety cues, and you're not overly relying on your thoughts to figure out everything. 